You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we're grateful that you brought us together on on this Lord today, and I pray that you will help us in this moment as we continue to press in uh, to the knowledge of your name, the name that you have revealed to us. I pray that you'll open our hearts and our minds to understand and to perceive what it is that you'd have to teach us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ooh, I'm going to sneeze here in a second. Hold on. Um, all right, so we are, we're in week two. Um, I guess I can, that, that I can erase. Oh, yeah. Better not do. I could do that. Okay. Now, so we're in week uh, two, and it's our last week. I'm trying to think four weeks, and then yeah, our last week dealing uh, with the, the tetragrammaton. Um, yod hey vav hey y h w h. That's why we get the sort of Yahweh sound from it. Um, recognizing that from last week's uh, conversation that that name has some etymological relation to the unveiling of the name in God's interaction with Moses at the burning bush. Um, so, for example, you have... Uh, here is... Um, Or something like that, but you can notice this when 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 God says to Moses, "You tell them, I am who I am sent you." You can see how these letters here look a lot like these letters here. I know that's kind of hard to see, um, and just to really bore the hooey out of you, this letter here and that letter there have a long dating relationship. Um, in fact, there are even places in Hebrew grammar where that letter will drop out and this letter will appear. So there's a, there's a marriage here between um, this, this phrase here and, and the so-called tetragrammaton. All to say, when, Moses, when God tells Moses, you tell them I am who I am sent you, that there is something wrapped up in this revelation to Moses about the name I am who I am with the technical personal name yod Hey vav Hey or Yahweh or Jehovah or whatever term um, you, you would like to use. Um, and this, I think, causes us some pause because the name of God as revealed in these four letters is not rep- wrapped up merely in our understanding and recognition of the four letters. Um, and that's that's not completely how our names work. I mean, I think there's... Well, actually, I think there is something to that. So, so let's think, for example, about uh, us meeting one another. And you are introduced to me someday at some party. Christmas party. This is this is Mark. And you, you could spell um, M-A-R-K. I mean, you got it. As a matter of fact, 
and I have real trouble with names. It's part of my only child syndrome. So I, you know, I have to work hard at names. I even try to do these, and I'm not good at it. I try to do this mental mapping exercise that the ancients taught us. Have you heard about? Like the interiority of your mind that you create a kind of castle in your mind and you associate certain images with somebody so that you can remember their name and then you draw it up. And I try to do this and then I'm like, Billy! And like, no, it's Jim. You know, and my, and my, and my, my, and my, my wife has gotten on to me about this to the point where if I, if I feel 70% confident with someone's name, I'm just going to ride it. I'm going to go with it. Um, and Naomi's been around enough when I've missed that she said, if you're not 100% confident, you might just want to not do that. Uh, uh, so the, the point is, you, what, however you do deal with names, you learn the names, you, you, you can associate my name, my name Mark with me, you could spell it out, but it doesn't really mean that you know me, right, or that I know you. I, I, can, I have, an, I have a, a term that I, can, that I can predicate on you that this is your name, but it doesn't really mean that I necessarily know you. And I think that's part of the that's part of the theology that's going on in the early part of the book of Exodus. I don't think there's any claim in the book of Exodus to suggest that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, the patriarchs of Israel in the book of Genesis, that they didn't know this. In fact, we know that they did. There's, there are attestations of it all over the place in Genesis where Abraham is having some kind of interlocution, some kind of engagement with yod heh vav heh with Jehovah. They, they knew the name. Um, and yet you have this crazy verse in Exodus chapter 6-2 that says, And by this name your fathers did not know me, they only knew me as El Shaddai. They only knew me as the All-Powerful One. They only knew me as the Creator and the Sustainer and the power, the omnipotent one over all creation. That's how they primarily knew me. Which says, I think, something significant about this moment that Moses is having and the significance of this redemptive moment to God's unveiling. And, and what, what, in effect, he is saying to Moses is, this moment right here is paradigmatic for your coming to know me. Not just to know the name, but to really know who I am, to know my character, to go deep, as we heard from Andrew today, to go deeper in an understanding of what it means to really be in relationship to me and to understand the significance of that, of, of my name. So again, when, when we read in Exodus 6-2, which is one of these really troubling verses, they didn't know me as Yahweh, as Adonai. They only knew me as El Shaddai. That's not a claim about, I don't think, about their understanding and recognition of those four letters. It's a claim of the uniqueness of this moment in God's redemptive economy in the world. This is a unique moment. It's, it's a signal moment. Um, and it's a moment when God is pulling back the curtain to say, all the fiddling that you want to do with language, all that fun etymological work you might want to do, that's not going to be sufficient for you to really understand who I am. You're going to have to follow me in this story. And you're going to have to attach yourself to me in such a way that you allow me to present myself before you and the nations in an unparalleled way so that you will have no problem identifying the character traits that, have, that define who I am. So when he tells Moses, you tell them I am who I am. And again, I feel pretty strongly about this. I would prefer translating this whole 
I am who I am as I will be who I will be. I think that's actually how it probably should be read. Um, and, and again, this is, this is not, to my mind, um, God playing cat and mouse with Moses. Even one of my favorite theologians in the history of the church kind of read the narrative that way, Karl Barth. Barth thought that when, when, um, when Moses asked the question, can you tell me your name? And then when God retorts by saying, I am who I am, God thinks, I mean, Bart thinks that God's kind of playing games with Moses a little bit. In other words, he's remaining, he's revealing himself in his hiddenness. And you want to know who I am? I'll tell you what my name is. I am. That's my name, which is like, that's not helpful, right? Um, and I think Bart, that's Bart's reading on that. And I think, I think Carl Bart's wrong here. I don't think that God's playing cat and mouse here. I think God is in a signal moment of revelation about the character and the identity of his name as it relates to the, his relationship with his people. And in effect, what the, what the, um, what the necessary conclusions, I think, of this are is, is, is God saying to Moses, you let the people know that if they want to know my name, if they want to know my, my saving character, if they want to know my redeeming qualities, then they're, they're going to have to follow me. And they're going to have to trust me. And they're going to have to come to the edge. They're going to have to sit in their community and watch as I let the light shine on them and the darkness shine on the Egyptians. And they're going to have to sit and watch as the, the, um, as the frogs come and invest the Egyptians' homes, but they don't have any frogs in their houses. And they're going to have to watch as they see these things, all these plagues, um, and do you know what the purpose of the plagues was? We don't have time to look at it because I want to get to Exodus 34. But you know what the purpose of the plagues? The purpose of the plagues throughout is, and you'll find this clause repeated, and if you want to see it again, go to Joel. In the book of Joel, you'll see Joel talk about these locust plagues. Remember this in Joel chapter 1? The swarming locust. The gnawing locust. Uh, the eat your underwear locust. I mean, the, the point is, we don't even know what these locusts are. They're weird, right? I mean, so all, but, but, but what's the, what's Joel doing? He's calling on the imagery of the plagues back in Exodus, right? And what does Joel do? Joel tells us the same thing that we learned back in Exodus with the plagues. Why does God do this? Very simple phrase. So that you will know that I am the Lord. So that you will know. I mean, think about the significance of those terms. So that you will know who I am. To know is to be redeemed, is to be reconciled. You want to know how the prophet Hosea describes the people in their moment of judgment and why they're moving as the northern kingdom into a moment of judgment? This is Hosea's theme almost, almost from beginning to end. They perish because they have no knowledge of me. They don't know who I am. They, they've lost any conception of what it means for me to be their God. So the knowledge of God in these plagues goes back to that burning bush moment with Moses there out in the Sinai desert. And, and what's God saying? God's saying, if you want to really know who I am, then just stand back and watch. Now, that's really what he's saying. Stand back and watch what I do. Because when I unfold these plagues in front of the mighty, powerful Egyptians... And I don't think we have really the words to describe the incredible character of that ancient civilization. Now, I, I, I think, and I imagine most of you are in this crowd, I think we're getting past 
um, some of the late 19th, early 20th century optimism about the progress of history in such a way that humanity is continually getting smarter and better. That might be true from a kind of technocratic, technological standpoint, but you, you do realize, right, we don't know how they built the pyramids. <laughs> All right, I mean, I, some of these things that they moved, I mean, I, I mean, you, you can just read these stones that they moved that weighed as much as like five cars. How did they do that? We don't know is the answer to that. I mean, so, so to think that the ancient Egyptian or the ancient civilizations were, you know, uh, unsophisticated or not as intellectually advanced as we are is just naive, right? In fact, this is one of the things I like about um, Gre- a Greco-Roman mindset that you might find, for example, in the first, second, and third century. Um, so, someone like Athanasius or St. Augustine. Um, or you name your favorite church father, would have known about the pyramids, they would have known about that. And they would have also known that they couldn't pull that off in their day. I mean, there was a sense in which there was a kind of respect for some of these older civilizations and what they were, what they were able to, to achieve civically and technologically, and the list goes on. So, all to say, the Egyptians were a mighty force. A mighty force. And here God is coming onto the scene with this, I don't, I don't know how to say it, but this group of people from Chelsea, um, or Clanton, to show, I mean, I, no, no offense to those places, but to show, to show, to show the, the, the mighty urban elite and the, and, and the religious elite and the, and the metropolitan powers of the day, um, that Israel's God is not just Israel's sort of domestic God and, and divine being, but He's the God who's created the whole world. And He's about to show you His power. So we follow uh, through the narrative and, and as we move from Exodus 3 right into the plagues in Egypt that all of this is wrapped up in God wanting to be known. He's not hiding behind a veil. He is, he is for lack of a better term, He is flexing His redemptive muscles before Israel and before the nation so that they would know who He is. And all of it in Exodus is kind of moving. you got a sort of clip thing. You move along in Exodus. They get out of the Red Sea. They're on the far side now. Now they're wandering in the wilderness. And then you've got all of these kind of strange chapters said twice in the book of Exodus about how to construct the temple. I mean, down to things like... I mean, you're, you've read Exodus. Down to things like, here's the recipe that you need to know for the anointing oil. Get some olive oil, a little cinnamon, a little cumin. A little bit. I mean, the, the recipe's in the Bible. For what the anointing oil, that those details are all in there. Um, you have other details in there about the significance of the artists for the construction of the tabernacle. That's another sort of fun read. Um, it says that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the artists of the temple so that they could do the work that they were called to do. That's a fun thing to sort of think about. So there's all that stuff in Exodus. It's a wild book. But I do think that Exodus as a whole is moving toward one signal encounter um, that's still wrapped up in this larger question, God, who are you? What is your name? And how do we come to know you? And that's when we come to Exodus chapter 34. So can I set the scene for this a little bit? All right, so here's, here's some scene setting. Exodus 34 um, is a text that happens on the far side of the golden calf encounter. And if there's any moment in Israel's history that problematizes her relationship to God, it's that scene at the golden calf. Um, right. Lord? That was remarkable. 
man. Um, it's that. It's that. It's, it's what happens in Exodus chapter at 34, in the golden calf. In fact, you'll know this from your study of the Bible that when you get into the separation of the northern and the southern kingdoms, that the northern kingdom. Um, what does Jeroboam do? This is so strange, but what does Jeroboam do right out of the gate in the northern kingdom once it splits? He sets up worshiping centers at Bethel and Dan. And what do they build there? Golden calves. It's like, oh my goodness. It's like, didn't you read the story? Um, but there they go again. So this golden calf encounter becomes a type scene. That's my the, the point of all this. It becomes a type scene in Exodus that makes its presence known again and again in Israel's midst as kind of the paradigm of what covenantal unfaithfulness looks like. You want to look, you want to know what it looks like to be idolatrous and unfaithful to Israel's God? Do you not want to know what it looks like to break the most important commandment, namely the first one? You shall have no other gods but me. If you want to know what that looks like, just follow the Egyptians, I mean the, the, the Israelites to the bottom of Mount Sinai as they built this golden calf and began to worship it. So this is a, this is a very big moment. And it is a moment, by the way, that's fraught with tension. And it's meant to be fraught with tension, I think. Why? Because the feeling that you have as you enter into this golden calf encounter is, I'm not sure what's, how this story is going to unfold. I mean, what's going to happen here? The, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments have already been given. You shall have no other gods but me. No graven images that you will worship but me alone. Um, and, and if we follow someone like Luther and Calvin and the Reformation tradition, we know that the first commandment is the one by which all the other nine are meant to be understood. That's, that's the foundation of the whole edifice of the law of the Old Testament, is loyalty to Israel's God alone. And, if you remember this, the Decalogue is presented in an either-or way. It's not, it's not create, there's not middle ground created. There's not, and the Decalogue doesn't come to us with um, mulligans. That's what I'm saying. Um, it's, it's, it's meant to be exacted in this way. If you don't recognize me as your God alone, then I might not recognize you as my people alone. That, that's the dynamic of the covenantal relationship. I, I am your God, you're to worship and love me alone. And if you don't do that, the flip side of that is, well, there are covenant implications to that. You might not be my people anymore. And by the way, that's the message of the prophets from beginning to end. The prophets are leaning into that dynamic. So here's the question. Here we're at the golden calf encounter. And it's like, well, what, what's going to happen? Is God going to obliterate his people? Um, and, and this is hard pills to swallow. I, I get this, especially kind of in our, in our modern moment. Um, but God, it was within God's remit to do so. I know it's a hard thing to swallow, but God, God would have been, God had warrant and would have been justified to exact that kind of overwhelming judgment on His people. He, he, he could have pulled the trigger, um, but He doesn't. And that's what's crucial to the narrative here. He could have. In some sense, you probably read it in such a way that you think He might have, should have, right? And He was ready to do it. But Moses comes along and he intercedes. And he intercedes in such a way as to model for us really what Christ would be and do for us as our high priest. He intercedes on, on the behalf of the people. Um, if you remember what God said to Moses, and these are these pronouns that get very nerve-wracking, but God said, by the way, go down to your people. Right? Do you remember that? They're praying together. 
and on Mount Sinai, and Moses, I mean, God says, you, you know, they've, it's not something really bad's going on down there. This is Genlet translation. Something really bad's going on down there, and, and Moses comes down and he hears the sound of battle, um, which is how all the English translations translate that. If you want to have a, you know, an NC 17 moment, um, look that, that Hebrew word up in a lexicon. All right. It ain't battle. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a bad scene. Um, and here Moses comes down and God says, you go down to your people. And then when Moses intercedes and he prays for them, he reminds God, remember, they're not my people. They're your people, right? your people. Um, and so it's all in this. And, and I will, will admit to you, Exodus 32, 33 and 34 don't come to us neat. It's choppy. The narrative blocks don't always sort of nicely tie in one to another. But if you kind of step back and get a larger view, it's golden calf, Moses' intercession, God's relenting from what he would do to, his, his, to the people, right, in, in mass. And then it all culminates with this question where Moses says, and God, I would like for you to show me your glory. That's, it's kind of remarkable that he asked this. But that's what Moses asked. I want you to show me your glory. Now, I want to talk about this just for a second. I was planning to talk to you about this today. Um, we dodged the bullet of the Old Testament and its figures of speech and the way in which it talks about God by using terms like, um, are you ready for this million dollar term? Anthropomorphisms. Right. You know what that means? Like we we attach human character traits to the being of God in such a way as God really accommodating language so that we can understand and talk about Him. Think about Genesis. God like God liked to walk in the garden in the coolness of the day. Right? So, really? I mean, how does a non-material being pull that off? Right? Walking. Um, here we have a, we have a scene in Genesis 18 where three angels appear to Moses at um, the Oaks of Mamre and they begin to speak in the first person voice of Adonai of Jehovah. Moses turns around and there's no longer three. There's one, and the one speaks. I mean, there's a reason why Rublev, the great iconist, you know, painted the Trinity from the standpoint of Genesis chapter 18. It's a fascinating narrative. My my point or. or Later on, in the, in, in the, as we move, as we follow Israel into the wilderness, a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. In other words, God, in His infinite majesty, has given Himself to us in the forms of bodily language. And I don't think I, I think we need to be careful to dismiss all of those quickly as just mere anthropomorphisms. Um, just, just a kind of literary device to explain something that's unexplainable. Why do I say that? Because you'll remember when Moses asked to see God's glory that God says, you can't see my what? My face and live. Now again, that raises all kinds of questions. Like, well, how does a non-material being who's not in any way constructed by matter in the way in which we would think about any species or genus out there, how does God, what does he mean by his face? What, what, what face does God have? And then God says, I can't let you see my face because no one can see my face and live. So I'm going to put you here in the cleft of this rock and I'm going to pass by you and you're going to see the effulgence of my glory and then you'll see my back. So you can't see my face, which doesn't make any sense to us. 
but I'm going to let you see my back, which equally doesn't make any sense to us. Right? How does God do this? And I, I just I kind of want to press this into you. To, and, and again, I'm still trying to get my mind around this, but this is, this is where I am now on this issue. Where I am now is what we're seeing with the use of language to describe God's body in the Old Testament. Now, we can dismiss it as just a kind of mere literary trope, and we can walk out of the room and be fine. Or we can come to terms with the fact that God is revealing something about how his glory is made manifest in the world in bodily form, in material form, with all of that stuff, like walking in the coolness of the day, like you cannot see my face, like God lets him see his back, like Ezekiel chapter 1, where the Ezekiel is actually allowed to see the throne room of God. Have you ever read this? He sees the throne room of God, all the, the jewels, lapis lazuli. I mean, it's just an incredible scene. And then this little line, and he appeared like the Son of Man on the throne. In other words, you've got a bodily image on the throne there in Ezekiel's vision of Tetragrammaton Adonai. So again, we can, there are ways to dismiss this. Or we could say something about the fact that God's bodily representation of himself as a revealing of his glory tells us something about his eternal identity. And it also prepares for us something very important in the life of God, namely the incarnation. When God steps into the world in the human form of this baby, Jesus of Nazareth, who then becomes a man, when God does that, if we've been reading our Old Testament carefully, it shouldn't catch us by surprise. It's just like God to take on material form so that we can see Him. So that all of these demonstrations of that, like we'll have here in Exodus 34, that we have throughout all the Bible, this is how I, this is my mental image of this. All of those are lightning flashes of what in time will be constitutive of the divine being itself. Because, again, I've lost some of you, and I'm sorry. I know know that. But this is the point. The point is, there was a time when the second... Thinking temporally here, and I know this gets really blurry. There was a time when the second person of the Trinity, the Logos, the Word, was not a man. If we're thinking in temporal terms, that's true. The Incarnation, Jesus of Nazareth, that's unique. But now we also know, you ready for this? that humanity in the incarnation is now a part of the divine being now for eternity. In other words, when Jesus resurrected from the dead and then ascended into the heavenly throne room, whatever that means physically, and med- I, I get lots of issues here, I get it, but whatever that means, we know that God, Jesus took his bodily reality into that existence. And that to speak of Jesus as man and to speak of Jesus as God fully in one subject in the divine life, we know that humanity and materiality is a part now of God's being. That's why, and just as an aside, it makes no sense to think of our ultimate goal as Christians to escape the world. You know, to escape our bodies, to be just sort of free-floating spirits, which scares me to death, the thought of that, right? I mean, ask Jacob Marley. Not going well for him, right? Uh, So, I I mean, I I don't want to be a free-floating spirit. We want to be embodied, and because embodiment is constitutive of God's very own being. And the Old Testament witnesses to that. And God walking and showing up at the oaks of Mamre and sitting on the throne like a son of man, or, or and the list goes on. 
I did, that, that's a, that was a freebie, complete aside. Um, but it's just to say to you that the incarnation is not a kind of, that's, that's out of left field. It's not out of left field. The Old Testament's been preparing us for that, adumbrating that for us, really from the beginning to the end, as we read the Law, the Prophets, and, and the Writings. Now, with that said, what happens in Exodus 34? And, I, and again, this is where the, the narratives are a little bit you know, jumbled here. But what happens is this. Moses says, I want to see your glory. God says, you cannot see my face and live. I'll let you see the effulgence of my glory as I pass. You'll get a kind of indirect encounter with it. But then it goes on, and it's all wrapped up in the same scene to where then God comes down and he does this. And I want you to hear this, because this is so wild. So the Lord, Exodus 34, verse 5, descended in the cloud. Now you hear all this language? See our time, yeah. Descended in the cloud, and he stood. See, these are all those anthropomorphisms we're talking about. He descended. I mean, how does a non-material being descend? He stood. They don't stand either. Um, but he's descended. He stood there with them. And then you ready for this? These are terms that we never see God really doing quite like this. It's so unique. The Hebrew word here is karah, to proclaim, to call out. It's what the prophets do in the Old Testament. And this is technical terms here that, now for example, Jonah chapter 3, verse 2. And after Jonah gets vomited out back onto the shores of, you know, of Assyria and he goes in, the next verse says, and you go to them and speak that which I tell you to cry out to them. Karah. So all this crying out language that we have in the Bible is typically prophetic address. And we don't have a prophet doing karah here. We have the Lord Himself doing it. So here He descends in the cloud. He proclaims. And what does He proclaim? So by the way, when you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's that there, tetragrammaton. So the Lord descends. He proclaims there. And this is kind of weird. But again, it sits right on the whole theology of the book of Exodus. And He proclaims the name of the Lord. Isn't that wild? The Lord cries out and declares His own name. And then he goes on to say this, the Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. I mean, that's bizarre, right? So the Lord descends, and the, and the content of the Lord's proclamation is His own name. The Lord, the Lord. And now here we are on the far side of that crisis of the, of the golden calf, and I want you to know now in this moment what my name means. I want you to know now who I am and my character in light of the exodus and your redemption, in light of your sin and my forgiveness of your sin. I want you to know who I am. And here we have the description. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He keeps steadfast love for thousands. He forgives iniquity. He forgives transgressions. He forgives sins. And then here's the other side. But He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the fourth, third, and the fourth generation. Now, all, all the way to the rabbis in the first century and second century A.D., these character traits here are referred to as the 13 medot, um, or attributes of God. 
Um, this, the, these verses here, if I can put it this way without being overly melodramatic, but these verses here are a kind of holy ground moment in, in the book of Exodus. This, this is another burning bush kind of moment where the Lord is making sure that we understand who He is and what His character is. And we don't have time to trace it today, but just so that you know this, Exodus 34, 6, and 7 worked their way all the way through the Minor Prophets. Um, in fact, when Jonah is on the far, on the eastern side of Nineveh, and I think he was probably on the eastern side of Nineveh because he was waiting on a fireworks show. I just told him 40 days and they're over. So I'm sitting here and I'm going to watch it. And it didn't happen, and he got so angry that it didn't happen because his, his prophetic word didn't come true, maybe God's honor is on the line. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that might have motivated Jonah's anger. But do you want to know why Jonah said he was so angry as he talks to God? I knew you would do this. I knew it. Because, and you want to know what language he uses? Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Because I know that your character is to be gracious, that you relent from iniquity, that you're just quick to forgive. It's it's Jonah being the elder brother at that moment in time. No, I mean, it's, like it's, it's, it's just like you to act this way, which is exactly what I think Moses wants us to get here in God's own self-proclamation. God acts in accord with his character. We shouldn't be surprised to see God acting this way. In those old Aristotelian terms, character is plot. Character. You want to know what someone's character is? Just follow them through the narrative of the story. Because that's how you find out who somebody is over the long haul of their existence. Character is plot. And that's very similar to the identity of Israel's God. The character is the plot. Follow me and watch me. Because my character, and are you ready for, if I can give you two words to kind of call, to frame Exodus 34, 6 and 7. My character is to be merciful. And my character is also to be severe. And if you'll notice, like the 13 attributes, and it's a challenge on how to number those, by the way, but the 13 attributes, nine of them are in the direction of mercy, and four of them are in the direction of severity. Now, we need to be careful here, because I don't want to play one feature of God's being over against the other. Um, When God acts in justice in a moment of judgment, He acts in accord with His character and His being. That's not in tension with the God being merciful. God is singular in His actions. So we, we can set that to the side. But from the way in which it's presented, if we put the attributes of God on a scale, it goes like this. The mercy far outweighs the severity. And why does that make sense in our narrative? It makes sense because God had every right in accord with His justice and holiness, to deal with Israel in a very different way after the golden calf. It would have been within His right. But He didn't do it because His character is to be quick to forgive, slow to anger. He visits, listen to this, He visits His loving faithfulness to the thousands. But He also visits the guilty and sin to the, you ready for this? The third and the fourth. Those numbers are important. Chesed to the thousandth, the guilt to the third and, and the fourth. These are, these are comparing and contrasting the character of God, and it is the character of God to be merciful and severe. And as an aside, because this is going to lead us into next week, but as an aside, we find the medot of God on fullest display in the Bible. Here in the book of Exodus, all throughout the Minor Prophets, as it culminates at, at Calvary, Because what do you find on display at Calvary? Both the mercy 
and the severity of God in their necessary relation to one to the other for the sake of redeeming humanity for himself. God's mercy towards sinners, but the severity of his justice and his judgment that's poured out not on you and me anymore, just like he didn't do it to the Israelites. He's not doing it to us either because he's taking it onto, and this is the mind-boggling aspect of the gospel, he's taking the judgment onto his own very being. He's turned it in on himself. So Exodus 34 here, the name of God, who God is, and, and the lack of the knowledge of God that you find throughout the minor prophets all rests on this character here of him being merciful and, and severe. All right, I haven't taken questions at all um, for a while, and I think we have time for... Anybody want to fire something around? Got, got a question? Yeah. No, I was... <laughs> I was nervous. My mother raised her hand. I was... <laughs> <laughs> this this could go very badly. Hey Mark, I got a question. Yeah. When, when he's saying to Moses the burning bush, you know, I am who I am, or I'll be who I will be, and then Jesus says to the Pharisees before Abraham was, I am. Which which name is that? Yeah, and that's a. I mean, it's a funny thing there. Um, I do think he's referring back to the Tetragrammaton in some way, um, and the force of that is felt. Um, it's that's not. The, the, the Greek term there in, in the New Testament is ego a me, I am. That's not the way the Greek translation of the Old Testament translates eia asher eia. It translates it, I think, ha-on, which means like the being one, um, which raises its own kinds of significant interpretive issues. But I think without doubt, when Jesus makes that claim about before Abraham was, I am, that, that the, the force of that was not lost on anybody. And I think he's making a claim about being a part of the divine identity. Yeah. Shame. Well, then, is that the same term that Jesus used in the garden? I think so. All the soldiers bowed down to him. I think that's the force of what you have. And again, it lends itself to um, the power of the name. It's the, the power of the name is such that it's, there's, it's, it's, there's a mystical force to it. I mean, I don't, I don't go down that sort of Kabbalistic line, but... There's a reason why certain forms of mystical Judaism see these letters up here as having sort of magic buried within them. Um, there, there's, there, you're, you're delving into um, the mysteries of the universe right here. I think, and, I, and I think we're meant to feel that. And when Jesus self-identifies and they all fall down, I mean, it's, I don't know how else to think about that scene, but you've got tectonic plates in the metaphysical universe that just did this, right? And they all fell. And I, I think, yeah. Which makes the cry of dereliction all the more inconceivable. It's like, I, I, that, what do you do with that? God now separated from God, being separated from being. It's, it's, it's the. It's, you, I mean, those those days from Good, Good Friday into Easter Sunday, the, the the world's getting all messed up. And there's a reason why Greek iconography, um, I think, presents this so wonderfully well. I mean, you'll have scenes, for example, of Jesus on the cross, and then dead people coming out of their graves and skull, it, it's it, as you, and that's what happens in Matthew's gospel. I mean, what's going on here? Well, the universe just got turned upside down. This isn't just about Spartacus dying on a Roman cross on the Apian way. This is the, the the creator of the world that's just been killed and now raised again. Nothing's ever the same. The, the, the world's different now and we need to think in very different ways. Yes, ma'am. I can't help but wonder in our modern culture, 
that Christianity, our Christianity, has watered down who God is to some degree, and that there's so much emphasis due to Christ that He is love and grace that we also forget that He is just and holy and there's judgment. And I can't help but wonder that our country that was built on Christian principles and we are now becoming so secular and pushing God out of the public square that his judgment there's been so much grace on this country that that, that yeah that that yeah yeah and again you know what I feel that I feel the force of that of course you know I'm always um, I think about, for example, the northern kingdom of Israel. If we can, if we, and, and I have to be careful because one one can't just move quickly from ancient Israel into American politics, right? I think don't don't do that. Um, but I, I would say, the, you think about the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, not one righteous king, and they existed for over two hundred years. Even that attests to the fact that God. God is, he's long suffering in the face of, of things that to our mind feel like they need immediate answers. And, and, and we all know this about so many facets of our existence. God rarely shows up on our timing of what we think needs to be. And then often doesn't show up in the way in which we think he needs to show up. But I think your larger point is exactly right. I mean, we, we don't get, you don't get, and this is going to come across harsh, but you don't get access to the warm and fuzzy aspects of the gospel. The, the, the love and the grace, the bear hug that Jesus gives you um, in himself. You don't get that without walking through the front door of self-identifying as a sinner in need of a Savior. You don't get that. Um, and I would say in the, mo- in the modern marketplace of ideas, Christian ideas, that is one that's probably, uh, uh, there's a grave threat there. Because we love that part, bear hug Jesus, love it. I call that Phil Donahue Jesus. We love Phil Donahue Jesus. Um, but we, we, we've got to have roaring lion Jesus too. And, and because this, this is the power of the gospel, where do we find refuge from the God whose glory we cannot see without ceasing to be? That, that should elicit bona fide fear. Where do, we, where, where, do we, where do we find refuge from that? In the self-same figure, under the shadow of His wing, um, and so we, our ten, we all have the tendency to choose one over the other, right? Um, but we don't, we don't get warm and fuzzy Jesus without Jesus' lion. I don't, I don't think. Yes, ma'am. And you said the first or second week that all parts of the Trinity were present in the fire that does not contain. Is that what you mean? Like my, that's my my understanding. And this is the this is the debate. Okay, this is the debate. There are the the question is who who is that? from the, a Trinitarian naming of God. Well, who's tr- Tetragrammaton? There are those in the tradition, and the Eastern tradition tends toward this, by the way, who would identify Tetragrammaton as the Father alone. Um, th- there are some who would identify, Kendall Sulin is, is a scholar's name, who would identify Tetragrammaton as necessarily Father, Son, Holy Ghost in their triune interpersonal relation. Um, I'm actually with Aquinas on this in the sense that I, I understand the Tetragrammaton there to be best understood as the divine essence itself, which can be equally predicated on the Trinity and its unity or the individual hypothesis of the Trinity as well. So I could say Jesus is Adonai, 
Right. Which to me, listening to these lectures and having studied and resonated with the fire of God throughout, he knows us. Yes. The fire is spoken about Old Testament. Yes, yes. That in this holiness of God, the fire, the one that does not consume, who can come us. Like you're saying, yes. we are invited to know that God, and it is hard in my own mind, I have put the Father yeah. on that yeah. holiness. Yeah. But but G, the thought that Jesus in all his love and the Phil Donahue Jesus was present in that fire as well. Yes. You've got to enter into a real relationship to get through that yes. holiness. Oh yeah. And I mean I, the love. no doubt no doubt. That, that would have been a great title for the series, Entering the Fire. <laughs> See, I'm not good at this. That that would have been good. Um Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the larger theological point is within classic Christian theology, we understand that no, no single person of the Trinity operates in isolation from the other two. They, they, they interpenetrate each other and, and all, even though there are certain actions that are particular to the Father and the Son and the Spirit, even in those particular actions, they never act without the interpenetrating presence of the others. So that, that's an, I think, important kind of Trinitarian logic. All right, I got to let you go. Lord bless these friends. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.